0: spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on three spooked girls and welcome to spooky season because it is officially september and you know what that means in our world it's the spooky season and not to leave her out because i should have done that part after but (laughs) oh well you know i'm weird um as always i am joined by my favorite ghoul friend tara
1: hey spooksters
0: And this week we're starting our two-parter, you know, like every quarter or so we do a big two-part serial killer or big case. Last time we did Zodiac, this time we are tackling the Green River Killer. I didn't know a ton about him, so I got to know a lot about him.
1: I didn't either y'all's requests pressured us into doing this. True. So thank you. (laughs) It was one of
0: those like we kept getting like every time we're like, what do you guys want us to do? Someone was like, Green River Killer. We're like, cool. Anything else? (laughs) (laughs) No, okay. (laughs) With that, we'll get down to business, do some promos and then get straight into that content. If you want to follow us on socials, you can find us at 3 Spooked Girls on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. It's very fun. If you want to hang out with Tara and I on a more day-to-day type of place head over to the facebook group three spooked girls official and if you so are inclined tara and i both on tiktok now you can find that in that group Mm -hmm. we share a lot of stuff in there we don't really share our tiktoks in that group but we have definitely shared that we are on tiktok in our facebook group
1: oh i'm sharing our tiktoks i share them i have no shame it's fine oh (laughs) I've shared yours. I've shared mine. Yay! (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I'll put it in the link tree. I kept meaning to and then I forgot. So I think like listeners, I said I was gonna and then I didn't. I'm sorry. It's okay. It might be there or just ask us if you really care that much. You can just ask us in the Facebook group. Yes. We will send you the link.
0: (laughs) Truth, truth. You can find us on basically all the socials now. Mm -hmm. We like to connect with you guys in the Facebook group. And if you want to help support, the show, you can do so by becoming one of our patrons at patreon.com backslash three spooked girls. Or um, it's the link tree that Tara mentioned. It's below. And for a little as a dollar a month, you get extra content. We do an extra episode for all our tiers. And then every tier from there up gets new and exciting perks. Two and up get slaughters. Five and up get video content. And Tara's brand new. A couple months now, she's been doing the haunted grounds, which are amazing. And if you like caffeinated beverages and spooky stuff, you would love it. And then it goes up from there. So some really good perks for our patrons. Mhm that kind of r- runs down for the socials also there is still time to get tickets to our live event, which is September 18th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So you can still get tickets up until the day of the event, but that's only the general admission. Once we reach the 35, which we're coming up on for our VIP, it will cap off. Since you're hearing this now, if you sign up for the VIP after this, just know that I am in real time mailing out those VIP swag packages tomorrow. So if you do after today, it may be a little later and I apologize for that but we're trying to get them to you prior to the event but there is still time that you can do that and sign up that is definitely in the link tree below make sure you get your tickets it's going to be fantastic and I am excited I bought a dress guys
1: ooh And I have a spooky outfit.
0: Which is the reason I bought a dress because Tara's outfit was fucking amazing. So I was like, (laughs) I got to step up my game.
1: (laughs) We going all out, guys. We're not going to just wear our graphic tees per use. We're going to (laughs) be dolled up for
0: you. I'm not going to be in my flannel. Well, I do have a drink for the week. Mm-hmm. Kate and I since we we're talking about the Green River Killer it's a beer and vodka cocktail called River Water oh and it's kind of green so I was like ooh it's Green River Cocktail okay okay so with that we're gonna take a break and we'll be back a little bit later with our content I'm Ashley,
1: and I'm Bianca, and And we we host Creep Creep It Real, Real, a podcast expertly crafted to expose the dark and mysterious corners of this and any other world. Whether it's a terrifying interdimensional entity or an even more terrifying corrupt human entity, we're giving you all the details. You can check out our website at creepitrealpod.com for access to our episodes and links to connect with us on social media.
0: Come join us. We're your family now. Well, welcome back from that promo break. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for Tara and I, because <laughs> we took a real promo break in our chat chat. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to hand it over to Tara to tell us a little bit about the Green River Killer, or as I discovered, has the same initials as who he is, which is Gary Ridgway. <laughs> and I texted Tara late in the day about that, and I saw her roll her eyes from
1: Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> All right, let's crack into this. So Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah to Mary and Thomas Ridgway. He is a middle child. He has an older and a younger brother. So all boys in this fam. The Ridgways would move to Seattle in 1960 at 4404 South 175th Street in the McMick, this is such a hard name for me, McMickin Heights near C-Tech. Thomas was a bus driver and he also worked part-time at a mortuary. Mary was a JCPenney saleswoman and she was described as, quote, wearing the pants in the family. And when reading about her, other words used to describe her was domineering and abusive. So you can guess how his childhood went, and Thomas was described as more reserved and quiet. Mary yelled all the time, specifically at her husband, usually till later on. And in one instance, she actually broke a dinner plate over his head. Dear God. Right? And he just got up, totally calm, didn't say a word to her, no reaction, and just left the dining room. No, that's bad. We don't do that. Yeah. So uh, it goes without saying, this wasn't the most ideal childhood happy home life and there was also other troubling things during Gary's childhood as well as there is with, you know, most serial killers. It was said that he would have violent arguments with both of his parents, but mainly Mary And he had an issue with bedwetting until he was 13. And that when this would happen, Mary would belittle and embarrass him because of this. And she would also force him into the bathroom to take a bath after every accident. It was said she would wash his genitals while wearing, quote, revealing clothing. If there was ever
0: a thing a person a mother could do to line her child up to be sexually fucked up it is to well past the age of like 13 year olds can wash their own junk for quite a few years but to do it in a provocative way yeah she is sick lady
1: yeah And it did fuck him up, obviously. So Gary has said that he felt anger and sexual attraction towards his mother all at the same time. And he would fantasize about killing her as well with these feelings. And while his father was quiet, he wasn't much better. It was said that he would come home from the mortuary and tell Gary while he was a child about how his co-workers would perform necrophilia, and he would go into all the details about this. It was also said that in one of the documentaries that he made Gary wear his soiled sheets, I couldn't find that anywhere else, but it was mentioned in passing, so I felt like it needed to be Added in so nobody at me.
0: (laughs) I can confirm I watched the same documentary. Mm -hmm. I was like, what the hell? Yeah.
1: And he, of course, along with his troubles at home, he had them at school as well. It was noted that he had an IQ of 82, he had dyslexia, and he also failed a grade twice. But with that said, on the social side, he was described as being very well liked by his peers and from his fellow students. And no one really had anything bad to say about him. He was described as having no trouble getting any girlfriends. And the only other thing was when, like, former teachers or coaches, because he played football when he was a freshman, had been asked about him, there was just this common theme of not being memorable, but not in a bad way. It was just like he blended in with the crowd of kids, which isn't something we always see with serial killers no because that just makes me think back to the my friend Dahmer movie (laughs) oh yeah so totally different situation there
0: when you look at any kind of like fbi profile they talk about serial killers it's going to be someone who one you're fucking shocked it's them and then two it's going to be someone who blends in so well that you're like oh yeah that guy lives near me i think
1: hmm Now, obviously, we're going to get into the serial killings later, but this was actually not his first attempt to murder someone. When he was 16, he had actually taken a six-year-old boy to the woods and stabbed him through the ribs into his liver. Thankfully, the little boy survived. And the boy had said, and Gary also did that, he, Gary, walked away laughing and said, quote, I always wondered what it would be like to kill someone, end quote. And there was never any repercussions at all. Nothing happened with that. He didn't get arrested. Nothing.
0: Yeah. Like when I was watching a documentary, they were like, we didn't even know about it until he told us about it. hmm. I was like, uh, how did a 6 year old boy get stabbed in the ribs and no one go? Who the fuck is stabbing children? Right. Like what kind of neighborhood do you live in that that flies under the radar?
1: Right? It's scary. That's like kindergarten, first grade age. Mm -hmm. It's a little child. It's crazy. So along with this, he does hit all three points of the McDonald triad. Bad wedding, he tortured cats, and loved to set fires as a teenager. So boom, boom, boom. This isn't good. And when childhood neighbors slash friends were interviewed later on, there seemed to be kind of conflicting views. So one kid said that the Ridgeways were super strict and that they couldn't even have a single snack until Mary or Thomas came home, even if it was like a vegetable or something healthy, you know, that you would want your kids to eat. And if they did happen to get caught having a snack, then they would be punished for it more than likely, physical punishment. And Gary's older brother was described as the golden boy, so he pretty much got to do what he pleased, and it was more so Gary and his younger brother that were under this like, close watch. There was actually an interview with one of his little brother's friends who was also a neighbor, so he was, you know, over there a lot and played with them and stuff like that. So he saw these things. And he also said that he could hear yelling when he was even in his own yard. He said, quote, I could sit up in my treehouse and look into their yard. All Here were cries of no, dad, no, and they were getting beaten with a belt or a stick or whatever. End quote. Now, other friends were interviewed as well, and they were like, no, they seemed okay, whatever. But it's like, the thing is, with it being a neighbor, they think they're in the privacy of their own home. I mean, this kid's minding his own business, obviously, but it's like he actually saw how they were behind closed doors when they thought no one was around to see it. So I believe it. And then to kind of fast forward, at the age of 20, Gary graduated from high school. Like I said, he had been held back twice. He had received a job offer at the Kenworth Trucking Company in April of 1969, but he decided to enlist into the Navy first. Basically, it sounded like to avoid getting drafted if that happened type of thing. Makes sense. And he enlisted on August 18th of 1969, so his job was held for him while he went to serve. And then just a year later, he would marry Claudia Barrows on August 15th of 1970, and this was said to have been a longtime girlfriend of his. Now, Gary had been stationed in San Diego, California, and Claudia went with him, and then from there, their relationship was described to pretty much just be based on sex. Quote, outdoor and indoor car sex marked the young couple's courtship, according to court documents. They favored a wooded area in Seward Park and one of the many South King County side roads, Ridgway knew well, end quote. And he was, and it seems like a theme, at least with the first two wives, he was described as having an insatiable sex drive, like he just needed more and more and more, and he needed more excitement. He didn't want just, like, in the bedroom. He wanted to go outside. He wanted it to be in public and the risk of being caught and all of that shit. And uh, just four months into his service, he, you know, while he's gone, because he went over to the Philippines and Vietnam, he got gonorrhea from engaging in activities with sex workers. And even after finding out his diagnosis, he continued to have this unprotected sex with them. So, yes, he was married or with somebody. And it came out later that Claudia was also cheating as well. She had an affair while he was away. She lived with two roommates and she was dating the guy. So from that, fast forward to July 23rd, 1971, Gary had been honorably discharged from the Navy, and he decided it was time to go back to Seattle because he had his job waiting for him with Kenworth. And Claudia had followed just a couple weeks later, and then that's kind of when things blew up for them. She ended up leaving him, and she moved back down to San Diego with her boyfriend. And when all of this happened, Gary decided to file for divorce on September 2nd of that year. And then it would be finalized on January 14th of 1972. And then from here, he meets his second wife rather quickly. But I will let Jessica tell you about her and that stuff.
0: I think it's interesting that, like, just before we unpack his second wife, Marsha, is that he was very upset that, like, Claudia would cheat on him. But, like, dude, you got a venereal disease mm-hmm. from sex workers in the Philippines. <laughs> And I get that like she formed a relationship with someone else. But like I would rather that than know my husband was in a different country getting venereal diseases. So after Claudia and Gary divorced, he went back out and started dating again. And he met Marsha Brown. Now, Marsha, a lot like Claudia, their sex life was very, when I say public, I don't mean like they did porn. I mean, they did like they had places that they would go in public. And one of the things I thought was interesting is people like Tara. Said is he would want to have sex like multiple times a day. I don't know how he's doing anything else. Marcia was like, Sometimes he'd want to have sex seven times a day. And I'm like, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the first thing I like. I was like, oh god, seven times in one day. Okay. <laughs> and I guess maybe the reason I think that is because it wasn't also, it wasn't like they were in their house doing that. It was like they were in public. So like they'd have to find new public places seven times a day. But yeah, like Tara said, he was an exhibitionist and he was insatiable. The fact that he just like couldn't get enough. And people at Kentworth, when they would describe him, they would say like, you know, like a woman would walk past him. And like most guys would like, you know, stare at a girl and then like go back to what they were doing. But like Gary would get lost in thought staring at the woman. So their relationship was kind of like interesting. I feel like he definitely attracted a certain type of energy around him. But in September of 1975, they would actually end up welcoming a little boy named Matthew. Gary at first was like not that interested in the fact that he had a kid. He was like, whatever. But then Matthew did later on go to say that like his dad was always there for him and things like that. And he was one of those guys who like ended up with a kid and was like, ugh hate this kid. It was more like, he's like, okay, I didn't want a kid, but now I have a kid and I'm going to be a dad. Mm-hmm. But this did change things for him and Marsha. Marsha wasn't really wanting to have sex that much or couldn't have sex. I know that there was a period in time in their relationship where she couldn't have sex. I'm assuming that there were some issues going on and this began to frustrate him. So he did what he knows, which is he started soliciting prostitutes. And like one of the things that was interesting when I was like l- looking into the relationship or, like, the relation that Gary had with prostitutes is his whole life was literally, like, sexually charged. When you look at his mother and then that relationship and the fact that he would, like, sit and watch her. We'll talk about that later. But, like, his dad was, like Tara said, was a bus driver. And, like, sometimes Gary would go out with him on these bus routes and they would drive past, like, the Strip, which was off Highway 99. And he would be like, oh, look at, like, and I'm not saying this. I don't think this of people who are in this profession, Like, I understand no judgment, but, like, his dad would say, oh, look at those whores. Like, look at them. Like, they're they're worthless. They're trash. Mm. So he, at a young age, this is what he's being told of these women. So when Marsha can't have sex with him and he has an insatiable need to have sex, he goes out and finds it. He, you know, I'm sure there was, like, some duality going on in there. And we don't know because it's unconfirmed, but there is some thought that Gary may have started killing prostitutes earlier than we know, but because he did start having relations with them pretty early on after Thomas was born. So... Obviously, his relationship with prostitutes is one of violence and of like bad, like we learn later. But it's like he loathed them, but needed them, which if you directly correlate his relationship with his mother. And if you take what Tara said, I'm getting a little philosophical and deep here, people. But like if you take what Tara said about like how his mom treated his dad and then the only time it really seemed like his dad was passionately angry about something was when he was talking about these prostitutes and like how they were worthless gary's love map just like fucked up all the way like it wasn't like a straight line was formed. it was like somebody put (laughs) the whirlpool filter on and tried to draw straight lines it was all crooked and crazy so like you know his dad is assertive about these prostitutes and also while he was on the bus sometimes would pull over and get a prostitute and have sex with a prostitute so like in his mind there's nothing wrong with that that's what they're there for so I think he goes, oh, my wife's not wanting to have sex with me or can have sex with me. The thing I need now is I need a prostitute. So I go and I get prostitutes. However, Gary was very like open and he talked often about this during this time about how much he disdained sex workers. And when Matthew was five, so like around 1980, Marsha decided to leave him. There's a lot of different stories about why she left him. Like one, which I don't know how much validity this one happens, is that she lost a bunch of weight and met a new dude, which I, I think that one is true. But like the one that I was like, what is that she lost a bunch of weight and then became a stripper. She started singing and topless dancing i feel like i would have heard about this except for this one place so okay but i'm saying it because someone said it and so basically she left gary gary didn't leave her this isn't like claudia and this made gary very bitter very angry very upset so obviously he snapped their divorce was finalized in 1981 and wouldn't you know that the Green River Killer would start making a map in 1982, which does make me think that he was killing before this. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of girls out there we don't know about and won't know about unless they're found. This episode of Three Sweet Girls is brought to you by Best Fiends.
1: I have to tell you about Best Fiends. It's a game that everyone is talking about. I love it because it's a perfect break from editing because y'all know we put out all the content, but it still really challenges my brain because it's a puzzle game. And you probably remember from the last time we talked about the game. I love solving puzzles,
0: right? So fun when you need a break. But the great thing about it is it's a casual game, so it doesn't stress me out, which is perfect these days.
1: Best Fiends is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's 5-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of super cute characters to collect. They've created a whole world right on my phone. It's bright and colorful with great graphics, and there's a story all about these cute characters.
0: Right? They're so cute. Best Fiends updates the game every month with new themed events
1: and challenges. Are you liking the new update? I actually am. I love that they do that because it keeps things interesting and fresh.
0: Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. So we're going to flash forward from 1981 to 1982, specifically July 15th of 1982. Two boys were out riding their bike, which I'm like, sounded like a fun afternoon for these boys. And they were down by a river, the Green River, and they look and they see a dead body. Can you imagine being like a little kid, like out riding your bike and being like, oh, poor things, right? It was near Kent, so Kent, Washington. And they found the body of 16-year-old Wendy Cofield. She was, like I said, 16, which is so sad. 16 is so young. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, okay, there's a killer. They looked into who she was. They realized that she was a sex worker from that particular stretch of land Mm -hmm. they were like okay what is this about is really what where they were going and they were hoping that this would be their only killing but they were no such luck so flash forward to august 12th of that year of 1982 they would find another body of 23 year old jebra bonner and she was found like on the riverbank and she was found and reported to police. And so they were like, okay, here's another sex worker found in the same river around the same time. I'm wondering if they could be connected. So they start getting a little bit aware of the situation. And then three days later, so August 15th, three more bodies were discovered. The first two were found it depends on which documentary you listen to or watch. He was either rafting or he was in a boat, but he was in the water is what I'm getting from this. A man was in the water in some sort of flotation vehicle, and he thought he saw mannequins. And to quote myself from the Black Dahlia, it's never fucking mannequins. So basically, Gary, but they didn't know it was Gary, weighed their body down with rocks, even inserting some vaginally. Oh. Ugh, is right, but bad stroke of luck for him because doing so, it preserved DNA. That was... Inside. Ah, oh, uh huh. He did not think of that because we did not know about this type of DNA in 1982. Mm-hmm. But the guy basically thought he saw it. He got closer. So the two bodies, one was 17 year old Cynthia Hines and the other one was 30 year old Marsha Chapman. They were both sex workers that worked on the strip. Marsha, like there's one documentary where they focus a lot on her because one of like the detectives that worked sex crimes was. Being interviewed and she talked about like how Marcia was out there because she had kids and like she couldn't afford to feed her kids and like clothe them and stuff with on her job. So she became a prostitute out of like sure necessity when she disappeared a few days before they were like really concerned where she went. Which I want to say, like, watching the documentary made me really think, like, the police force in this area genuinely cared. Like, I know that it might not seem like it, but I think they cared about the girls who worked those streets because they knew who they were. And they not just like, oh, that's so-and-so who works on the street, but they could, like, tell you about who they were yeah and the sad thing is like Marsha's hand was like not weighted down and so it was in the river and they said it looked like she was waving because of the current and it was like one of them said it felt like she was waving to us come find me oh man i know i was like i'm not crying listening to true crime documentary but it kind of was So they would find her. And then while the police were walking down the riverbank, stroke of luck, they would find 16-year-old Opal Mills. She um, was found on a riverbank nearby. Because basically we find out later when Gary confesses, and we'll talk about in the second one, is that he basically just like killed these women and then pushed them into the river. He was like, here, I have a dead body. I need to get rid of it. Here's a solution for it. Here we go. After that, on September 16th, after they find all four of the bodies of the young women in the Green River, the King County Police set up the biggest task force it had ever seen since Ted Bundy in the 70s. Which, Teddy Boy, we'll talk about him later. So, over the next, like, couple of years, they keep finding these bodies. They, like, girls go missing, they pop up. Girls go missing, they pop up. They're just like, what the hell is happening? And here's the here's the reason the suspect pool was anyone who picked up a sex worker on the strip. And it was a lot like a reporter was talking about it. He's like, these girls were aggressive in getting clients. Like if you stopped at a stop sign or stoplight, they'd sit on the hood of your car. They wanted business and they they weren't ashamed of getting business. And it's like, do what you got to do, sweetheart. Be safe. (laughs) If you were in that line of work, be safe. Turn on, find my iPhone, something. So because of this, police were stumped and they did something really smart. They called in the FBI, specifically the Behavioral Analysis Unit, which if you know me, you know I love my criminal minds. And so it's that unit. So it would be like in real life, it would be the guy you see on Hunters like he came in. Right. So they called in the FBI and they gave a profile and really they started like trying to narrow it down. But when you have such a large suspect pool, like anyone who drove down that strip could be that person. And there were hundreds of people who went through there a day, if not thousands. It's a very populated area. Mhm. They wouldn't really kind of get a good crack at a suspect until about April 30th of 1983 marie malvar she was a sex worker and she disappeared according depending on the story of again the documentary you watch like the very first one was like her boyfriend knew that she was a sex worker and he would go and like watch her not in like a bad way but like to protect her type way Mm -hmm. and like see what like who she would leave with and stuff like that and then according to one documentary did not know she was a sex worker And they were just eating at a diner and she just took off with the dude. That's not, no, mm -mm, don't believe that story one bit. Because that one also led me to believe that they found Gary Ridgway really fast when in fact it was four days later. So... Marie gets into the truck with Gary, obviously, we know it's Gary, but like with the suspect and they start driving and the boyfriend starts to follow for like protection. And then Gary kind of like ends up losing him like he turns left. And I think the boyfriend gets stuck at a stoplight. And then when he turned, the guy was gone. And then he goes back and waits for Marie. And when she doesn't come back, he gets freaked out because he didn't see the guy's face. Apparently, he didn't write down the license plate, all that stuff, which... Write down license plates, which goes back to the Uber thing where it's like, take a freaking screenshot of your Uber people and send it to someone else. So with that, the boyfriend went to like Marie's family and was like, she's gone. I can't find her. What do we do? They started searching in neighborhoods kind of around that area and they found Gary's truck, which matched the description that he gave. And so what they did is they called the police and the police went out and knocked on the door and Gary answered. And at this point, he's, like, living by himself. And he's like, can I help you? And the police are like, hey, there's this woman missing, and they think she was in your truck. Is anyone home with you? And they're like, and he's like, nope, just me. And they're like, okay, have a nice day. And then he left, like, toodalooed. And, or, like, the police left. And the way that the documentary tried to make it seem was, like, Marie was in his house, which he didn't keep women that long. So she would not have been in his house. And one of the reasons why they didn't really, like look at him hard as like a suspect right away is because they had a different suspect lined up who they thought was a little bit more primo for them and that would be Melvin Foster and basically Melvin came in and was like I'm a cab driver you know I know a lot of these girls because I drive them and he knew the streets really well all the surrounding areas and he had several markers in his life that they were like you seem oddly suspicious sir so they started questioning him and they were like we think he's the green river killer can we set you up for a polygraph and he was like i ain't got nothing to lose well he failed the polygraph apparently in the middle of it and he explains it in a documentary I watched with him and he said is they said it was going to be like a 90 minute exercise right and then they were going to ask him questions but he had like a panic." Attack in the middle of it, and they gave him a volume, which that would automatically make you fail. It's not that he was guilty, it also could be the stressor of having stuff strapped to him, feeling trapped, and he might not have known what it was. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, they let him go because they didn't have any like they had they didn't even have circumstantial evidence really with him. It was just like, you know, these people hunch hunch so over the next few months the police would start like really looking into this they had a task force of 41 people they were like getting a computer which was like a big deal because it's the early 80s Mm -hmm. and they were trying to digitize everything and i will say one thing for these police the one thing that they did that a lot of police departments didn't do in the 80s was they kept every fucking piece of evidence like they imagined where evidence could go like i was listening to the he's the now sheriff but he was one of the detectives on the case which by the way he's so adorable i'm like oh he's so cute (laughs) anyway (laughs) they would be like we would go and get birds nests that were nearby because we knew that like where dna was and where it was going and we knew right now we weren't gonna have answers but like we didn't know what tomorrow could hold type thing and like They would pick up like bird's nests because they knew that birds would like go get hair and put it in their nest. They would go pick up piles of animal droppings because they were hoping that when like, and he said, unfortunately, when they would eat on the bodies, they were hoping like maybe the killer dropped a ring or something like that. And the animal picked it up like anything. And I mean, there's like a warehouse full of evidence. Mm -hmm. And there's like a locker, like a giant ass industrial size fridge locker. Full of shit that they kept DNA wise because they were like, we're going to try everything and like superpower to them for that. Yeah. But the police also, you know, would keep running into Gary Ridgway and letting him vominos out of the way. He was actually found with one of the suspected Green River killer victims. Basically, like two times, a police officer would like roll up on him very shortly after they would find someone. But like like a couple days before they would find Gary like sitting alone in a parking lot or in a secluded area. And the police would be like, what are you doing? And he's like, just sitting here. And they're like, you need to go. And he would leave. (laughs) But like four days later, they would find a body. And no one was like, wait, also, he was with Kelly McGinnis, and basically, she was a known sex worker in the area, and they rolled up on the two of them, and they asked what they were doing, and, you know, they were like, we're on a date, which was not what was happening. And they were like, okay, you guys need to go and get out of here, that kind of shit. And they would leave, and then Kelly would go missing, and she, her body wouldn't be found until 2003. Yeah. Something also to note that Gary was arrested in May of 1982 for soliciting an undercover cop. Right. Mm-hmm. And then after that, his suspected killing started. So it was like, because they let him go. They were like, oh, you solicited a prostitute? Okay, bye. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get it if, like, it's as active as they make it out to be, like. Right. It's probably really hard to like pin someone down. Mm -hmm. And so they basically, you know, he's in the car with Kelly. They give him a warning and tell him to go. I bet she would have been totally fine being arrested at that point so they just keep trying in 1984 they contact gary again and they're like okay they do an interview with him he admits that he was with kelly that night he admits to knowing some of the girls on the board like the pictures of the missing girls he like admits to knowing the areas in which bodies are being found like gary Ridgway was kind of silently screaming fucking catch me without being like, catch me. Mm -hmm. And they would release him and then they would bring him back in a few weeks later and he'd take a polygraph test, which he passed. However, they did not ask him any questions about anything that like any of the other girls, they just asked questions about the girls he already knew, which he had admitted to knowing. And if they were known sex workers in the area and he has a history of like sexual promiscuity with prostitutes he would admit it's not like he's gonna be like you know what no i i know those girls and i have yes had sex with prostitutes but i never had sex with those prostitutes he would say yeah i had sex with them and then they'd be like gary like why are all these girls you have sex with end up dying and he would be like i don't know and they're like so you're saying someone's coming behind you and killing all of these girls and he's like yeah pretty much what an unfortunate luck. So that was in May of 1984. By December of 1984, the suspected victims would be up to 42.
1: Crazy.
0: Right? And like I said, the biggest problem was that they they had too many suspects for this. Just too many fucking suspects. And they couldn't, like, Gary looked good for it, but they couldn't definitively, they didn't have, like, a smoking gun. Like, they didn't find him standing over the body. But... Like I said, they did collect a shit ton of DNA, which is going to play a really big part in our part two of this episode, Mm -hmm. which you can hear in two weeks. (laughs) When it goes live. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) So we hope you enjoyed part one of Gary Ridgeway. I know that a lot of our listeners are out there like, yes, they finally did it. We have asked so many times. (laughs) So we will come back and talk about the rest next time. And we will see you back here on Thursday for a Stabby. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.